uh, we sang earlier a version of Psalm 23. And Lord Jesus, we pray that as we study uh, your word, you would make us lambs before you, but lions to the world and within ourselves, that you'd be glorified in all that we think and say and do. Amen. Well, let me, let me begin with a, 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 a bit of fun. Um, <clears throat> who has a cat? Keep your hands up. It's right. I'm not going to embarrass you too much. I, just, um, I want to know the names of your cat, please. Cats. Uh, Mowgli. Mowgli. Polly. Polly. There was a couple over here. Alfie. El- Alfie. Poppy. Poppy. Clyde. Okay, now, question. I thought those would be the sort of answers I'd get. How many of you have got a cat uh, with three or more syllables to its name? There's something about animals that makes us want to give them names with two syllables or fewer. Anyway, um, there was a writer who had a cat, and he called his cat uh, Mahesh Lalashbaz. Um, uh, there's going to be more about that, uh, about Mahesh Lalashbaz a little later, but it gives you something to look forward to. For the purposes of the sermon, um, I have to say, I'm enormously impressed. Christine Ricks has just gone, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I get that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think probably you are the only one in the building to have got Mahershala Lashbaz. Well done. Um, but for the purposes of the sermon, I'm going to flip around the reading that we've just heard in a way. Do have it in front of you, page 1194. Uh, we had uh, verses uh, 11 through to the end read. Now, uh, I'm going to take uh, verses 17 to 21 first. They tell us what to do. Uh, Paul's written the the letter, this is coming to the end, and uh, these are the final instructions. They tell us what to do. Uh, In the second part of the talk, I'm going to cover the earlier part of the reading, verses 11 to 16, because they tell us how to do it. So first I'm going to deal with verses 17 to 21. What to do? Well, even that part can be divided into... Two parts. The first of those is do be good, and the second is don't be godless. So the first uh, is uh, do be good. This is not, uh, as he opens in verse 17, uh, kind of just going over old ground. In verses 5 through to 10, uh, Paul was uh, explaining uh, to Timothy the dangers of those who pursued riches, who actively set themselves the goal of getting rich. That's done, it's dusted, he's not concerned with that now. But I suppose what may have happened is he'd he'd done this kind of big bit in verses 17 uh, through to 20, sorry, in verses 11 through to 16, and then thought, oh yes, now, uh, I just need to be clear. That was about those who could pursue riches. What about those who are rich? So in verse 17, he comes to those who are rich already. And he says to them, it's okay to be rich. 
God provides us with everything for our enjoyment. As Margaret established, God provides chocolate. Uh, God provides everything. But we do have to accept, uh, if we have stuff, that God is the giver of it. Uh, He's not anti-money. But we are not to put our hope in it. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, because it's so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. So you take what you've got, you don't invest your hope in it, it might disappear tomorrow, the banks might crash. I mean, who could ever imagine that might happen? Uh, But it's accepting that you are given money for a reason. You are given, uh, to do good, given it to do good with it uh, and to give and share yourself with it. Command them to be good, to do, be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. It's all about hope because in this way, verse 19, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. It's about laying up treasure now for then. Taking hold of a life that is truly life, not the life we live now, but is the life to come, the coming age. It's all about hope. And in that sense, we can take it to mean riches. It probably will. But whatever it might be that enables us to say that tomorrow will probably be okay. We're sitting here on Sunday, and we've probably got diaries that tell us what's going on tomorrow. And the day after, and the day after that, and weeks and months and years ahead. And whatever gives us the confidence that we will live to secure those diaries, to make those things happen, Whatever that thing might be, perhaps our wealth, perhaps our achievements, that's where we may be in danger of putting our hope. But just sticking with this thing, review your money. Does your bank account tell your bank manager that you follow Jesus? I don't think mine does. There's a certain amount of money goes out each month to good things, but I'm sure that's true for lots of people. It's not a radical reading, my bank account. And Paul is not saying, as we might wish he some, sometimes that he does, be practical and be prudent. He's not against enjoyment, but he is saying be radical. Use it. Lay up treasure now for then. Do good with it. Give it. Share it. Do be good then. Then just the second part of this little section, towards the very end, don't be godless. Verse 20. Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what's falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in so doing have wandered from the faith. We saw earlier in this series in 1 Timothy 
that there were lots of people going around really conveying to those in Ephesus, to where Paul was writing, that the business of getting to know God was a getting to know. It was about an acquiring of knowledge. And you could go further and further and have more and more knowledge. And you could talk about it. There were things to talk about. You could talk, according to what he says, and you get very excited, talking about the, the genealogies that appear in the Old Testament. What did they tell you, and had you learned them, and what, what could, how could they be manipulated to your uh, advantage? Uh, a world that seems a, a million miles away from the one in which we live. But we'll come back to that a little later. That was the business of acquiring knowledge, instead of which, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Older versions, you may remember, say, guard the deposit of what was entrusted to your care. It's not about just endlessly acquiring a little bit more. Rather, there was this thing, as it were, that came down from heaven. Uh, not a thing, of course, a person, the, the person of Jesus Christ, and what we know about him was entrusted to your care. You have what you need. You do not need to go on acquiring more information and getting strangely fascinated about the little byways and highways that you can pursue. No, it's there. What you do with it is what matters. Don't scurry around trying to find out more little bits and details that don't matter. It's what you do with what you've already got. You've got it. Defend it. Preach it. Teach it. But guard it. It is a thing. And that is it. You don't need more. I do worry sometimes when I hear uh, people say to me that there's, that, oh, if only I knew more. You have a lifetime. may not be a, a life, a long lifetime. Let we we had a, a letter from a friend uh, yesterday, who said that at the age of 104, her mother had turned to Christ and been baptized. Wow. It, there may not be a long lifetime left, but that's quite manageable in a lifetime. You don't need to know more. Guard the deposit of what's been entrusted to you. Don't run around. Going into myths, in his case, genealogies, and just chattering about nonsense. Stick with what can be known because you know it. And then teach it, preach it, defend it. Remember what true religion is. Going back to the themes he'd spoken of earlier in the book Jesus is Lord of all, all time, all space, all peoples all the parts of a human being, all ages of human being, all statuses of human beings. Jesus is Lord of all of it. Guard that. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Jesus is Lord of all. That's the shortest hand version of that, that you are to guard as a deposit do be good, don't be godless. Well, we may want to reply to Paul that that's all very well, thank you, Paul. But we aren't very rich, and we're not troubled in our church by people preaching a false message about genealogies. Well, of course, by Paul's standard, first of all, most of us are rich. If you're a pensioner, or living on basic living wage, 
then you can still be generous. And that puts you into the category that Paul's talking about. And how much more is that the case for most of us? But remember the heart of these two little sections. Don't put your hope in wealth. Turn away from opposing ideas. We sang earlier, and I noted it down, break the hard and stony ground. That is still my heart and yours. There's a hard and stony ground to break up. And one of the most persistent bits of that hard, stony ground is where we will put our hope when we're not putting it in Jesus. It may be different things. There will always, in the church of God, be temptations to put hope in something that is not God. What is that for you? In most cases, it probably will still be, in our world, wealth. In some cultures, you might say your family connections. They'll see you right if there's anything problematic. But in our culture, it's probably still wealth. And there are always, in the church of God, opposing ideas, as Paul calls them here in verse 20. And some of us will go, hang on, Paul. No, no, we, don't, we, we want to be free to think for ourselves. We don't want thought control. Maybe. Paul couldn't care less. He wants you saved. Christmas time, idolatry in the world around us is, uh, is wealth and presence. And it's easy for Christians to get all sniffy about that and to complain about the materialism of the world around us. But we too, inside the church, can have our Christmas time idolatries. The idolatry of family. We too easily at Christmas exclude the excluded. Well, all that is part one of what we might say in verses 17 through to 21. Do be good and don't be godless. But then let's turn to verses 11 to 16 and consider how to do all that. First, let's be clear that it's addressed to all of us, not just addressed to some of us. In verse 11, Paul addresses himself to Timothy, the man of God. Uh, well, that does not mean, oh, okay, I know, I, know, I know about men of God. Yeah, they were the sort of hairy people in the Old Testament who did, went around prophesying. No, he's not talking about that. It doesn't even mean man, not woman. It's the word for man in Greek that's just a human being. Not man as opposed to woman, but human as opposed to other creature. The of God does mean a separation to God's purposes, but only in the kind of way that you might get in a baptism. And so it is for all of us, baptized into the faith of Christ. Well, let's briefly get back to our cat. We probably, at this time of year, all know that brief, suggestive passage in Isaiah chapter 7 that talks about this child, Emmanuel. But one chapter later, in chapter 8, we learn of Isaiah's second son, who is to be born. His first son was called Shiajashub, but the second son is to be called Mahershal Alashbaz. Uh, because the time is coming when God, uh, as God reveals to Isaiah, when the Assyrians will sweep down on um, uh, the people of God and just catch them up and eliminate them, destroy them. 
Maheshlalashbaz means speed, spoil, hasten, plunder. And that was a prophetic name that Isaiah was to give to his son. And the writer involved called his cat that because this was not a fireside cat that stayed home and uh, just sort of sat by the fireside purring and waiting for another bowl of whiskers or Felix. Uh, This was a cat that was out at night and would deliver bits of mouse onto the sitting room floor uh, in the morning. Speed, spoil, hasten, plunder. That's the name of the cat. And I thought of Mahershal Elishbaz when I read verses 11 to 16. Flee, pursue, fight, grasp, charge, command. Those are the verbs in that section. And they just reminded me of speed, spoil, hasten, plunder. For Paul, it is normal. Normal, because he's writing to man of God, human being set apart for God, that's all of us. It is normal to conceive the Christian life as a military-style campaign of urgency and fierce endeavor. And I wonder whether we've simply lost that. But these verses, we may be deep into Advent now, and you may be waiting for John the Baptist and Mary, but these verses make entirely appropriate reading for Advent. There's judgment here. Jesus is coming back. And there's that sense of discipline in the face of what God will do. I asked earlier what our bank manager could tell from our bank accounts. Can our children and grandchildren tell that to follow Jesus is to be on a campaign? The way we will keep our family Christmases, do they speak of urgency and fierce endeavor? Or do we have a model of following Jesus that is much more like Tibbles, sitting by the warm glow of God, hoping that one day life will be peaceful enough that we'll get to have a good purr and a bowl of milk? Water, you're not supposed to give cats milk, are you? Sorry. There are voices raised in the church at any given moment that oppose Paul at this point. There are always those who want to say, we're saved by grace and the right response is simply quiet trust, which is true. And then there's an argument, though, that follows for a kind of retreat from the world, but not for Paul. He knows all about trust. You can't teach Paul about trust. He's argued in this letter that we should trust God for all that God's given. He set before us the central fact. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Trust him. And if his style is now military, it is no longer the style of the man he describes himself as once having been, a violent man. But it is urgent. And the question is, is our style urgent? It certainly made me worry about my own style. Am I urgent? Of course, it's easy to decline in urgency. The years come and go, and the urgent cat becomes the fireside cat. But Paul gives us two reasons for remaining old, if you like, but remaining seasoned campaigners with it. We are to pursue righteousness. Here, that's the internal personal righteousness of the Jesus follower. 
godliness, that's the more outward facing, uh, behavior in the world, faith, love, endurance, gentleness, that's perhaps a rather surprising uh, word in this list, but actually I've met lots of military people, it's amazing how gentle they are on the whole, because they know how to use force, they also know how to be gentle. And we do all of that because of these two things, the promise of the future and the fact of the past. Those are the two reasons, and they're there in this text. Verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Verse 14, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is that that life to take hold of. There is an appearing still to happen. There is that future. That future has not gone away. It might be that none of us, not one of us, sees lunchtime. There is the promise of the future. But there is also the fact of the past. Uh, In this uh, section you get this language of the good confession. Confession here is not the confession we had at the beginning of our service, I've done a bad thing. But a good confession, the public recognition in each mouth that Christ is Lord. You made it yourself at baptism. So verse 12, again, when you made your good confession, to which you were called, when you made your good confession... Jesus himself made it when Pontius Pilate asked him, are you the king? And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. Between the promise of the future, Christ's appearing, and the fact of the past, Christ's confession, lies my life and yours as followers. And Paul says that's a movement. It's dynamic. You are not to settle by the fireside if you live in that period, between confession and appearing. I encourage you in the battle. I recently heard Philip Pullman, the noted atheist, uh, say that of all religions, Christianity at least was the least harmful. There, there. Harmless, fireside, pussycat. Well, this is a summons to urgency. Now, I suspect there are those of us who, hearing that, can say, yes, yes, I I get that. But my life is busy. And what do we say about a summons to urgency when there are presents to buy, homes to clean before the family descends, houses to decorate, and cards to write? Well, it's not the same thing at all. It's not the same thing at all. It is just living with these great two monuments about the fact of the good confession, the appearing of Jesus, and every moment lived in the knowledge that we live between. And because of that, uh, Paul is able to Uh, to write the praises of God in this section, and the praises of God become part of the, the reminder 
of where it is we live, not in the busyness of frantic pre-Christmas preparation, but in the urgency as we remember the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 15, which God will bring about in his own time. There's there's an unfortunate um, translation thing here. It says God, the blessed and only ruler. It's not in the original. I have no idea why they put that in there. Other translations don't. Other translations make it clear that what follows is about Jesus. God will bring about in his own time the revealing, as it were, of Jesus as the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be it honor and might forever. Amen. Now, all of those are actually rebukes as well. It is a praise song, but it's all a rebuke, and I'm not going to go through it now. Each element is a way of saying the false teachers in Ephesus are wrong. So Paul knows exactly what he's doing when he says all that. We could write uh, praises ourselves that made it clear our world is wrong at every single point when it rejects uh, Jesus. But it's living between those two great monuments, the fact of the confession and the appearing of Christ, knowing that right now he is the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. If we live in that, then life will be urgent, and that is not the same as busy. And yes, it may well be that urgency speaks to busyness and says, settle down a little, spend a little less time doing that and a little more time doing that. And so let me summarize to finish. First, make the confession. It began with the confession. It began with speaking, opening your mouth and saying, Jesus is Lord. Do not stop speaking. There is godliness, a life to live. There is righteousness, a holiness inside to pursue. But do not stop speaking, because faith and love are always needed alongside righteousness and godliness. Uh, And then secondly, uh, the way I've put it here, uh, this is just a sort of shorthand. You may find it helpful, you may not. Pursue it for yourself. There's a personal element here. Pursue it for yourself. Fight for it in the church of God. There's something churchly here that we need to guard. And pursue and, and fight always that this point in your church should speak of Jesus rightly. Thirdly, defend it against the nonsense that there is out there in the world. There's something worldly here. Pursue it for yourself. Fight for it in the church. Defend it against the nonsense in the world. Live a life of urgency. Meher shalal hashbaz. Speed, spoil, hasten, plunder. It's not quite that. But it is flee, pursue, fight, grasp, charge, command. Truth is, It's not what my life looks like right now. And I have to do something about that. Do you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we meet 
before you as the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You alone are immortal. You live in unapproachable light. We are those who such an extraordinary God has made his children. And we live between that confession and your appearing. Make our lives urgent, we pray. Amen.